Thank you so much for checking out our podcast. We hope today's message encourages, inspires, and empowers you to follow after Jesus like never before. Before we get into today's teaching, I want to invite you to join us live at one of our services at any of our three campuses in West Virginia, or join us as we stream live online. For more information or to save your seat at one of our services, visit our website, iheartchurch.online. Now let's check out today's message. So you're kind of getting the um, behind the scenes family meeting. I was told that I was going to speak um, today on Friday afternoon. So I had to um, kind of tweak this because it was really just a bunch of like random chicken notes in my journal. Um, and uh, and honestly, so it's not really a sermon per se, but a devotion that um, we did with our worship team. How many of you are blessed by our worship team? Amen. Such sweethearts. You know, there are a lot of people who can sing and play instruments, and that's not, that's it's beautiful and all well and good, but um, but I love a heart of a person who humbly offers their gift, um, and we talk about it, this is not performing, this is stewarding, an op- this is a, an opportunity to steward a moment between heaven and earth, between God and man, and to help them to encounter the love of Christ, and so I just love the heart of our team, and um, and so each month we, co- we have a service together, so this is what this is from. Um, so I'm excited to share it with you guys. You get the kind of behind the scenes, um, and I guess this is the way the Lord wanted it to work this morning. So if you're ready, say, I'm ready, I'm ready. And now that you're listening to a Vision Night worship team message, you are all officially on the worship team. So turn to your neighbor and say, you're singing at altar. They're giving you the mic. Okay. All right. All right. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. Father, I just thank you for your presence and for your people. I thank you, Jesus, for your word. And I thank you, God, for your providence and the way that you design and orchestrate things, God, that we think are accidental or happenstance. But um, who knows why you have restructured things so that this message could be heard at this service at this time to this person. And so, God, I, I, I humbly just submit my heart and my mind and my notes and my thoughts to you into the lordship of Jesus and I ask that you would only let me say what I hear the father saying God I ask you also that we would have tender responsive hearts um, and unveiled eyes that we would not view scripture through a lens of our own experiences but for just through the truth and so I pray that you'd write your word on our heart and that you draw us closer to you I pray this message would be marinated and bathed in love um and God, I pray that it would transform our lives, our homes, our church, and our community in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. So we've been in this series, When the Church Acts. And really when we're talking about the Acts church and the book of Acts and the things they did, it's kind of a play on words. Yes, we're talking about the church in Acts, but we're also talking about how the church in Acts acts, right? That was your cue to say acts. So we're talking about how the church in Acts Acts, right? So if we're going to model and use this um, as a manual for how we, if we want to encounter Acts 2 kind of miracles, then we need to perhaps look at Acts 2 methodology and as a, a blueprint for what true, bold, alive, living, active Christianity looks like um, today. And so today's message, we're actually going to be talking about participation versus observation, When the church acts, when the church participates versus observes. So participation versus observation. Let me ask you this. How many of you in here would say that you've ever been misunderstood by someone? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. How many of you have ever been deeply misunderstood by someone? How many of you have ever sent a text and then you realize they did not read that the way that was meant to be said, right? Um, How many of you have been misunderstood by someone who really loved you? Okay. How many of you think that you've ever misunderstood someone that you really loved? Okay, it causes sharp disagreement, right? All right. Now, I want to propose to you that we are all vulnerable to misunderstanding God when we read the scriptures. And so the Bible talks about how the Pharisees knew the letter of the law. They knew what it actually said, but they didn't understand the spirit of the law. So when we go to scripture, we can't just look at what it says to do as a list of liturgy or rules. We have to ask ourselves back up from the text and see this is a love letter from the father written to his people. What is his heart trying to say? 
And so we're going to do an example. I'm going to, throughout this whole message, I want you to listen to the heartbeat and that way, because sometimes it's easy to come to things that the Lord tells us and it seems harsh. Anyone ever read things in the Old Testament and thought, that's harsh, right? Anybody ever read the words of Jesus and thought, Jesus, that's harsh, right? <laughs> like, I don't know how people say, oh, Jesus was the God who, when they, they differentiate, they're like, I don't get how Jesus is the God of love and the Old Testament God is me. And I was like, man, some of the stuff Jesus said, though, those red letter words are some of the hardest words in Scripture. And so, but when we look at Scripture, we can't just take what it says, but we really need to understand what he means, what is he trying to say? I was reading um, a little comic book Bible that I have with my son, and we do. It's a, a trilogy, and they had some really good things, but I'm always quick because it's a paraphrase to point out things that maybe were like, well, they got that a little bit wrong, or that's not actually what the Bible says. Uh, and for the most part, it's really good, but yesterday we were reading one, and they were in the garden, and Peter cut off um, the high priest's ear, and the picture of Jesus just looks so mean. Like, he looked at Peter like, I hate you, Peter. Like, and so I, I looked at Elias and said, Elias, you know that's not really how Jesus looked at him. Like, he wasn't, I don't think he was mean. I think he was broken. And so it's easy when we read scripture, if we're not careful to listen to the heartbeat behind it, to misunderstand God. And so we're going to take a practice example, and I'm going to give you a scripture, and we're going to listen for the heart of not just what it's saying, literally, but what's the heartbeat behind it. And we're going to do that as an example. And then I'm going to go to this message on participation versus observation. And I want you to try to do that with every subsequent scripture and really the overall theme that we're talking about to hear the heart of God. Okay. If you're ready again, say, I'm ready, ready. Okay. How many of you, you might be triple ready, 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 ready. You came in hungry this morning. All right. So here we go. I hope you're hungry because we're in Leviticus. All right. Leviticus chapter 19, verse nine. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields. Do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. So if I was just reading this in Leviticus, like many of us read Leviticus, I would think, doesn't apply, I don't harvest grapes, right? Um, but if I really am listening for the overall understanding of why, why did God put this in Scripture, why do we read this, why is this here, you can hear the undercurrent of God's heart for those who are needy, right? That God cares about the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, the widow, and not just does God care about them, but if God cares about them, what? I should care. We should care about them. This is an overall heartbeat of what we call in our family othersness. Can you say that? I think it's a made-up word. Othersness. This idea that my life isn't just about what my needs are, that I'm going to glean the entire field and strip every grape off that bunch, but I'm going to take time to get out of my own sphere and my own experiences and to look around those around me and to see that maybe God has given me too much because they don't have enough. It says others in this mindset. Really, this mindset is contrary to us, but central to the gospel. If you think about the cross beams, I know you've heard this, and this, this vertical beam being love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This, these are the two commandments that all the law hangs on them. And then this horizontal beam, which is love your neighbor as yourself. If you just have the vertical beam of love for God, really, that's just a form of religion. That across, all you have is a vertical pole, right? You don't actually have the cross unless we intermingle not just our love for the Lord, but our love for others. And so the, the, the Bible, from the beginning to the end, is, is just this heartbeat of thinking of others, thinking of others, loving others um, as we would love ourselves. And really, if you take away this vertical beam, though, and you just think about loving others and meeting the needs of the poor, really this is no different than what the world does. This is just benevolence. This is just philanthropy. If it's not tied to God, then again, it's not the gospel, right? So the gospel requires both beams. It requires that we love him, but as we love him, it should start to affect the way we see them. So it's impossible to stay in this infantile, adolescent, immature consumer mentality the closer I get to Christ. Are you following me? When I'm a baby, I don't care how much sleep you've had, and I don't care if it's that, that's your meal that you ordered. I want it, right? 
and I'm going to eat your meal because I'm hungry. I don't care that you only have two chicken nuggets, mom. I want them. I don't care that I already ate 10. I want yours, mom. I'm really hungry and I have a growth spurt, right? You get a little bit older. Maybe some of the selfishness comes out of you from those little glory years. I'll call them the 8 to 12 years of age when kids just get super sweet and self and, and they're independent. They can do things on their own. And then they have this crazy relapse called adolescence, which is called duplicate toddlers. Can I get an amen? Toddlers with greater stakes, uh, greater ramifications, right? And so they go through this again, this independent stage. And how many of you have ever been a teenager? Raise your hand. How many of you have ever raised a teenager? Raise your hand. And we say, oh me, oh my, right? Now, I look back now and I look at my mother and I feel sorry for her because of what a brat I was when I was a teenager. But what squeezes selfishness out of a child or a teenager or an adolescent? I have a, a proposal. I would say it's marriage and children. Suddenly, when you get married, and suddenly when you have kids, you can't sleep till noon or two o'clock anymore. You don't get to eat whatever you want. Now your chicken nuggets are their chicken nuggets, right? So it squeezes the selfishness out of you and forces you, whether you like to or not, through the school of hard knocks to become unselfish and others oriented to lay down your life for your family. And so this concept really should be with us as, as we mature, this idea as we mature in our believer status, we should become more and less and less consumer, come on, and more and more contributor. Less and less selfish and more and more othersness. This is a mark of maturity. All right, so we're going to swing back to that in just a moment, but let's talk about participation versus observation. I looked up what a spectator sport would be on the um, all-knowing Wikipedia, and it said, a spectator sport is a sport in which the notional reasonable person cannot take part due to barriers to entry, such as high level of training required or specialist equipment. A spectator sport. You can't participate. You have to sit in the stands because you don't have the training necessary or the equipment necessary or the qualifications to participate. Aren't you thankful that Christianity is not a spectator sport? That when Christ tore the veil as high priest, he now made a way for every single one of us. In Revelation, it says to become a kingdom of priests. That all of us are joint heirs with Christ and every single one of us called not to watch others do ministry, but to do ministry ourselves. That the great commission didn't go to 12, it went to all, to all of us to make disciples. We have been commissioned to be partakers. We have been commissioned to be a kingdom of priests. And so there's, when you look at the life of Jesus though, and you look at the people that he encountered, I see some parallels to modern day Christianity. So now when you think about who Jesus taught, you had the crowd. Can you say the crowd? You had the crowd and then you have the 70. Say the 70. Now remember the seven day, he took two by two and he sent them out to do works for him. And then you have the disciples, which were the 12. Can you say the 12? And then you have the three, Peter, James, and John. Now, the crowd, Jesus fed those fish stick sandwiches. You know what I'm talking about? Like he has some Captain Deasy multiplied up in there, right? Okay, now the crowd showed up and they heard a message and he was gracious and he fed all of them. He never turned the crowd away hungry. He didn't despise the crowd. It says, matter of fact, that he was moved with compassion for them, okay? But the 12 got some special knowledge that the crowd did not. You remember me talking about this with the Repair the Way series, that Jesus would frequently take the disciples to the side and explain what these mysterious parables meant. And he said, you get to understand this, they don't. For everyone who's listening will get more knowledge, but those who do not listen, even what knowledge they think they have will be taken away. So we see there's really levels of intimacy here. That the level of commitment was tangled up and tied up to the level of intimacy. There's the crowd, and then there's the 12, and there's the 70. And then, though, there was the three. There was Peter, James, and John. Now, not all of the disciples got to go to the garden. Not all of the disciples got to go to the Mount of Transfiguration. Just three did. They had special knowledge. They got to see Jesus be transfigured. They got to see Moses and Elijah. But then you have the one. You have John, the beloved 
who scripture says he would lay his head on Christ's chest. Now, in the Gospels, in the, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, the first three, if you've ever read them, you'll notice they're super similar. And this is why they're called the synoptic Gospels. And this is a Greek word that means the same. The synoptic Gospels, they're all pretty much just a narrative, a factual narrative. But then you read John, the beloved's Gospel, and it's super different. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke will tell you what happened and who Jesus talked to, but somehow John knows not just who Jesus talked to, but what he said to them in a private room. Now, why? It's because John was always near Jesus. John was there at the cross when everyone else scattered. John was being commissioned by Christ to take care of his mother. There was a deeper level of intimacy. He was the beloved. And so now I used to think that the 12 disciples were kind of like an elite squad, that they were the only ones chosen. They were the only ones that could have served in that role. And then I got this this verse this week that I read, and this messed with me. I want you to listen to this. In Mark 8, verse 34, then calling the crowd to join his disciples. Those little seven words rang in my ears over and over and over and over, calling the crowd to join his disciples. You know, Jesus could draw a crowd, and can I be honest? We can too. It's not real hard. You give the crowd, again, some free food, they show up. Come on, somebody. Miracles start breaking out, they show up. You get some um, charismatic speakers, or you get some nice performers that can give you goosebumps, and the crowd will show up. The crowd's not hard to get there. But Jesus was calling the crowd to something more intimate. He was calling the crowd to be disciples. And listen what he said. If any of you, if any of you want to be my follower, and he gives three things, you must give up your own way, Take up your cross or take up his way and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Calling to the crowd to be his disciples. If any of you want to come, here's what you have to do. Give up your own way. Take up my way, which is the cross, and follow me. You see, discipleship was open, but it was costly. It was open, but it was costly. Now, before you think, oh, it's this performance-based Christianity. No, it's not. This is discipleship. To be a disciple, there has to be a, what? Discipline. That's where we get the word from. And so there was a leaving the old way and following him. And I'm going to propose to you that in today's Christianity, this is still happening. There is the crowd And Jesus loves them. And we will never stop trying to reach them because he didn't stop trying to reach them. And we will never get weary and angry and judgmental at them because he didn't. He fed them. He never let them go away hungry. He healed them. He had great compassion on them. But he still called them. From the crowd, he called them. And he didn't give them all the knowledge. He took those who were truly hungry and explained things even greater. And we have to do the same thing in discipleship. We give an all call, and then we take those who are hungry aside, and they get the the extra course, come on somebody, the hidden manna, that dessert that grandma sneaks and hides from everybody because she knows it's the favorite, and so the favorite kid gets it, right? And so we still call out to the crowd, and then there will be the 70 that come in that are hungry, then that want more, and then there's that radical 12 that leave father, mother, sister, brother, everything, the gospel is everything. And then there'll be the three, and then there'll be the one. And my proposal to you is that the Lord is wanting to call you closer wherever on that journey that you are. He wants you closer, but it's costly. And levels of intimacy are always tied into covenant commitment. So before we think this is performance-based, no, it's what you and I do. You don't share your private, intimate, embarrassing moments with the crowd unless You're me, because somehow the Lord makes me do that all the time. We share our intimate moments with those who are closest to us, in covenant with us. To those who are walking in close fellowship, that is who gets the private side of who we are. And God is no different. 
Intimacy is tied into covenant. Intimacy is tied into commitment. And so this is Jesus' call, but we know that the crowd didn't all follow Christ. And in Luke, let's look at, I want you to hear, remember the heartbeat. Don't misunderstand what he's saying. Listen and tell if you can sense the emotion of Christ in this parable that he's telling. In Luke chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus replied with a story, a man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. And when the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. He's calling out to the crowd. But they all begin making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pair of oxen and I want to try them out. I'm not really sure how you try out oxen, but. Please excuse me. And another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, before you think that the Lord is angry, I want you to imagine for a moment that you went through elaborate links to do something nice for people and they don't show up to the banquet. And to make it worse, it's like dumb reasons, right? It's like, uh, it's rainy. I don't really feel like it, okay? And can you imagine some of the dumb reasons that the Lord has heard for not following him? He left heaven's throne to come, not to be glorified, but to serve and to lay down his life. He could have done the kingdom work without us, and yet he says, hey, I want you to participate and come alongside. I want to make you a joint heir with me. Come follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. Nope, sorry, Jesus. I got to go to the tannin bed. <laughs> if anybody, go, I don't know if people go to the tannin bed still, but you'll get cancer, so don't, okay? <laughs> and listen, but sometimes our excuses are legitimate ones in the natural. Remember the guy who said, hey, my dad just died. And Jesus like, let the dead bear the dead. <laughs> like, whoa, Jesus, right? And, and listen to what he says here. It says this, a large crowd was following Jesus in verse 25. This is right after that. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison hate everyone else by comparison. Your father, your mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot. Does he say should not? You cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying all these things, even the good things in our life that he's given us, none of these can hold rank and file above his. That to truly call him Lord is to make him Lord over all. And it's such a higher rank than anything else. There's no close second. That if you compare your love for your mama with your love for Jesus, it would look like you hated your mama because you love Jesus so much more than him. That means not even your mama can pull you away from the will of God. Oh, why does he say things like this? I've seen it personally. People call to the mission field, but their love for mama, they say, no, Lord, I love her. I can't leave her. Come on, I'm being messy. This is why he says, I want it all. If you want to be my disciple, I want it all. This is what a disciple is. It's a radical call to all of it. It's not a spectator sport. He said, come follow me, not here, I'll come follow you. But listen, isn't this how we as Americans almost treat Christianity? Like when you go on the internet and you're buying something and you add Christianity as an add-on to your cart and you put it in your cart and I'm going to take this along with the rest of my life. Jesus, I want you to tack onto my life and you can come follow me and my dreams and my vision and my life and who I want to be and where, who I want to be with. And you come bless what I'm doing. You come help me build my kingdom. What can the kingdom do for me instead of what can I do for the kingdom? Come on. And so this is how we have unknowingly done this, though. We've made Jesus follow us instead of us following Jesus, and it just doesn't work that way. You know, another definition of a spectator sport is a sport that many people find entertaining to watch. A sport many people find entertaining to watch. And again, I love the American church. I'm a part of it. Our name of our church is I Heart Church, okay? I love the church. 
But does this not sting a little bit when you read this? A sport people find entertaining to watch. Well, I'll go if there's food. I'll go if the lead pastor is teaching. I'll go if they're singing that song. I'll go if I don't have to wear a mask. Uh-oh, right? Come on. Oh, y'all got, y'all got quiet. I'll go to work with a mask on. I'm not saying I'm fine if you got your mask off right now. But listen, how much of that did we hear in the beginning stages? Well, I don't want to go if I have to register. Well, I don't want to go if I have to wear a mask. But you'd go to work and work for a paycheck with a mask on. If the conditions are right, then I'll tack you on. But this is not the call of a disciple. The call of a disciple is I'm following, I'm sticking with you. I'm following you. And I'm not here just to watch. I want to be in the, put me in the game, coach. Put me in the game. I don't want to just watch, but we have created an entertainment consumer Christianity and it's crippling the body of Christ. Consumer, what can I get out of it instead of, no, what can I contribute to it? A, cons- a, con- a crippling consumer mentality. But Jesus is not a tack-on to our life. He's not an option to add on the scroll-down list. You know, I have seen some pra- crazy sports fans. Anybody like a sports fanatic and you get, like, weird on sports, when your season, when your team is playing, come on, raise your hand. I know, I've seen some of y'all. Paint your face. Okay, thank you for one man, one man, the remnant that's honest in the, in the kingdom of God. I have a picture of a sports fan here. This guy's out there. Look at that. All right, he loves basketball. How many of you agree this dude loves basketball, right? Okay, who do you think loves basketball more, this guy or this guy? All right. And then we have a video of another sports fanatic. Check this guy out. Now, you know how I found that? I looked up LeBron James training videos. How does he work out? And that came up. That was the title. Okay, I'm going somewhere here. I'm going somewhere here. Sometimes we can be such big fans of Christianity that we can mistakenly believe that we're actually also playing on the team. But who loves basketball more? The guy who painted his face and showed up like that? Or LeBron? Look, at, look this, is, this is him working out. This is an oxygen deprivation mask. And so he works out with this on to reduce. It simulates being in high elevations. Now, he trains year-round, not just in-season, off-season, year-round. Every single thing that he puts into his mouth is, is this good for basketball? Every day, what can I do to train for basketball? He eats, sleeps, breathes. Now, I love the guy in the orange romper, but I can tell you that he ate Twinkies and Ho-Hos, right? He wasn't in elite training. Who loves basketball more, the player or the fan? And so what's dangerous is when we're part of a Christianity culture that we can just come and watch and be super big fans of. I've got the t-shirt. I've got the bumper sticker. I I reshare the post. The danger is that we could potentially be a fan and not a disciple. If it wasn't true, then why did Christ say, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? Did we not do all these things in your name? We're such big fans of you. I don't know you. You're not my disciple. A disciple, come, follow me. Leave it and come. Leave it and come. A disciple, a player, eat, sleeps, breathes, kingdom, lordship to Jesus Christ. There's not an off season when the doors shut and nobody's there. He's still a disciple of Christ because Christ is there. 
He's not a fair weather fan. Good times, bad times, filtering. How does my money filter through the kingdom principle? How do my talents filter through kingdom principle? Not what can the kingdom do for me, but what can I do for the kingdom? This is a player of the game. This is the difference between participating and just observing. We can become such big fans we mistakenly believe we're on the team when in actuality we're just a loud cheering section. Or even worse, a loud booing section. You know, it's really hard to boo someone that you've worked and done what they've done, labored and toiled and sweat. When they miss the shot, you're a little easier on them. And sometimes these critics that stand and just boo, you have to ask, are they actually doing kingdom work? Because when you're doing kingdom work, ain't nobody got time for that. And so we become these sections of crowds sometimes if we're not careful that are just fans and not true disciples. We have all of these excuses. And Paul too had excuses, but he says in Philippians, a shift came in his mind when he stopped caring about all of the other things that seemed to be important to him as God was calling him closer. God was calling him out of the crowd, out of the 70, out of the 12, out of the three, calling him to his heart. I once thought these things were valuable, he says, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared. There's that comparison word. I love my mama, but when compared to Christ. I love my family. I love my kids. I love the good things God has given me. But if he asks me, to surrender and to lay down my Isaac, yes, Lord, what's the question? Because when compared to Christ, there's no comparison. With the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for this sake, I have discarded everything else. It's like dropping, it's like it hot. Discarded. Not holding on, not reluctantly. Discarded everything else. Counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Now, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I love this verse 10. I want to know Christ, and I want to experience. Can you say experience? Why don't you say it one more time? Experience. Does it say, I want to know Christ, and I want to watch or read about him? I want to read about the power. I want to experience for myself the mighty power that raised him from the dead. But then he goes on to say this. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. He didn't just say I want to experience the glory and the resurrection he said, I want to experience the suffering and the death. I want it all. I'm not, I don't want to be a fair weather friend. And then when God gives me what I want and there's enough fishes and loaves and my miracle is there, then I'm there. I want to be the type of, I don't want to be the crowd that shouts, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then seven days later screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Because suddenly... He didn't meet my expectations the way I thought he would. This is what the crowd does. But the intimate, the beloved, stays at the cross even when it's pain. The beloved doesn't just share in the resurrection. The beloved gets in the garden and sweats with him and says, please let the cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And this is what a disciple does. We carry the cross. We give up our own way. We take up his cross and we follow him because you know what following Christ ends in? The death of our will. Giving up my will for the will of Christ requires that we're not fair weather friends. We're not the crowd. We don't have a consumer mentality. What have you done for me lately? What can you do for me now? But Jesus, though none go with me, I still will follow. And listen, the sad reality is the majority are just not going to do this. In no culture have they ever, not even when Jesus was present in the flesh, did the crowd all follow him. And again, he loved them. He served them. 
but he also came into an understanding. I think this is the mentality that we're starting to grasp, especially in the past year or two. If the epitome of leadership had people who walked away, all leadership in Christianity will have people that walk away, right? And he didn't go chase after them. He, wa- he was sad and broken. But he realized that each person has to count the cost. And unfortunately, unfortunately, most don't choose to come near because they're clinging to excuses, to a relationship, to a habit, to a person, to a fear, to a bitterness. I can't leave this. I can't do that. And they don't want to let it go. But Jesus calls us not just to observe, but he calls us to participate. He calls us into a participatory fellowship and partnership. I love that, a partnership. From the garden, the heartbeat. Remember, don't misunderstand them. The heartbeat was not to take us out of the earth and bring us to heaven. That's not why we're saved. The whole heartbeat in Eden was to bring heaven to earth. To walk in the garden with the Father. To partner with him in kingdom business. And that heartbeat has not changed even in Revelation. You see heaven coming down to earth in a new Jerusalem. You see God restoring and making all things new again. And partnering with you and I. If in heaven you think you're floating on clouds and playing a harp, you haven't read scripture. We're working. We're ruling and reigning alongside Christ. This is his heart. He wants to partner with us. He wants you on the team. He wants you to participate with him. This is his joy. This is his joy that you would celebrate and that you would come alongside of him. He calls you into partnership. Following Jesus is more... It's more than just watching. And we have to be careful of this again in our culture. I love America, but America has taught us to pursue the American dream instead of God's dream. And sometimes those ideas are at war. Because Christ is saying, take up your cross, follow me, turn the cheek, give them your coat too if they took your shirt. Walk a second mile. Let them hit you on the other side. Keep your mouth shut like a lamb to the slaughter. Give your head down on that block. And yet the American says, revolt, give us Barabbas. We'd rather a revolution than a crucifixion. Listen, sometimes these ideas are at odds. But there's no comparison. Christ is preeminent. We have to follow him. If we're going to truly be disciples, we have to follow him wherever he leads us. Last night was Passover. It's uh, probably the, one of the most holy days in a Jewish calendar. It was, it's commemorating the night that the Jews were delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea by the mighty hand of God, and God delivered them from slavery. It also commemorates 2,000 years ago when on the same exact night, Jesus became the final Passover lamb and shed his blood and ripped the curtain in two so that we could be delivered from bondage to sin and pass through the blood of the Red Sea into deliverance and freedom. And so for 4,000 years, the Jewish community has passed down this ritual, this ceremony, because the scriptures tell them to, of what's called a Passover Seder. And there's been a, a kind of a new awakening of Gentiles, that'd be you and I if we're not Jewish, that have decided, hey, I would like to try to maybe tinker and clumsily follow some of these Jewish cultures to experience it. And so we held last night our first Passover Seder. I know Tracy's here. They did one as well this weekend. And she helped me get all the million things you have to have for it. It's a lot to remember. So we just had two families that were over, tried not to overwhelm myself. And we did a Passover Seder. And one of the coolest things about it is it's a full sensory, immersive telling of this story and really all of the feasts the Jews don't just tell the story of what happened but so the generation coming next to them gets it in their brain they actually act the story out so there are no observers only participators everybody tastes 
the horseradish. And you're supposed to taste the horseradish on the matzah. And, it, and in Jewish culture, you're supposed to put enough on it that your eyes water to remind you of the bitter slavery in Egypt. And so you taste the salt water to remind you of tears. And you drink the cup to remind you. But it's a full sensory, immersive experience of participation. Everybody says the plagues out loud. Everybody participates. And can you imagine what this does to a child who from earliest years has reenacted these stories? Now can you see what, why their culture is so strong in this heritage and stories? Thousands of years. But I really think this is a picture that God doesn't want us just to read the Bible. He wants us to experience it. You see, when I participate, I have a level of knowledge and intimacy and experience that I cannot get just from reading or from observing someone else do it. We all want the resurrection glory, but it's tied in to the cross. That I want to suffer with him, I want to lay down my will, and then I'll experience the resurrection. He wants us to participate with him. I have stood on the ledge 1,200 feet in the air in the Rockies looking a half mile at the next cliff that I'm supposed to now trust all of my life in this zip line that's going to zip me from here to there. And if you've ever been zip lining in West Virginia, let me tell you, this is not the same. There are no trees to hide how high up you really are. And their mountains make our mountains look like little baby bumps, right? Now, I could read about ziplining. I could read every manual. I could take a college course on ziplining. I could meet all of the ziplining guides and have discussions with them. But it's a totally different experience to strap up, to take the step, and to fall. The wind in my face, the experience is different when I participate than when I just read and observe. What kind of experience? This is the heartbeat that God is trying to share why does he want you to participate? Because he wants you to experience it for yourself. It's not that he's mad. He's like, listen, the only way to truly be my disciple is come. Come on. Hey, hey, come on. Come follow me. I know you're going to have to give up some things. Can I just tell you it's going to be so worth it? Now, the difference between a fan and a player, yes, the player has more skin in the game, Yes, they have more grit and resolve and sweat and blood and tears. But you know what they get that the fans never get is a ring on their finger. Even if they're on a bench and never see court time because they're not a star player. If they come to the practices and if they signed up on the team and they do the conditioning and they show up for the game, they get a ring. The glory is reserved for the pain that you go. You have to come through the Red Sea before you get to the promised land. And we can trust him on this adventure. And as we look at Acts 2 and we see, I want you to notice how many of them were engaged. It says all the believers, can you say all? All the believers devoted themselves. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing meals. Did it say some of them opened their homes and a couple of them brought food every single life group, but most of them just showed up, their kids wrecked the house and they left. Uh-oh. You know what we do? We've been pushing you guys to get out of the temple and not just come to church like the movies, but to participate. But you know what we do? We just swap the temple for home groups. Home groups are amazing, but the same thing's gonna happen to home groups if we come with a consumer mentality. If we come, we don't bring anything to to share a commonality and othersness. We don't, sh we don't, we hide our discussion because we're embarrassed. We don't bring it, offer anything, offer any service, offer any help. What's going to happen is that what has happened. Life group leaders get tired. All the work falls on a few when it shouldn't. It was never meant to be that way. They close the doors of their homes and we go back to square one and we're right back into coming to the church and watching the movies like we're watching movies. All the believers. Do you want to know what it takes for Acts 2 revival? It's not a mandate from pastors or organizational structure leadership. All the believers, this is what it takes. It's an individual decision. All of the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to sharing meals. 
you can share even if you're a bachelor and you don't know how to cook you can pick up a five dollar hot and ready little Caesar pizza right you have something even if you don't even if your words are clumsy you can say something you can smile you can pick up a toy you can come early you see a need you can meet the need but please don't be a consumer be a contributor come get in the game this is where joy is found and all the believers and listen what happens when they do this a deep sense of awe came over them all not just a few why because they were all participating so they all had this sense of awe i wish so bad you could please hear me i wish you would understand i have gotten to do some amazing things in my life the lord has blessed me so much I've gotten to feel the black sand beaches of Hawaii and touch my hands on buildings in Russia. I've traveled all over the world. I've done some amazing things. But I cannot tell you, there is nothing to even compare. When I get to walk another person across the line of faith and let them introduce them to Jesus Christ, there is nothing to even compare it to. Whatever you're chasing that's distracting you, whatever your excuse for just watching, can I beg you, experience this for yourself. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so all of the believers had a deep sense of awe. And they shared everything they had. There was a commonality. They sold their property and possessions and they shared the money with those in need. It goes back to that verse we read. They didn't gobble up all the grapes. Maybe I have this extra because he doesn't have enough. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met at homes for the Lord's Supper. And they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. You have leftovers. Instead of refrigerating, putting them in the refrigerator, take them to a neighbor. A very simple thing. Bring them to someone. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, this is the result, the Lord added to their fellowship, those who are being saved. God is inviting us to participate. God is inviting us to mutual sacrifice, mutual sharing, mutual loving and giving of ourselves. Please understand his heart in this. He wants a kingdom of priests. He wants you to experience this for yourself. This is where joy is. This is where abundant life is found. It's in partnering with God in the good news. There is nothing better than this. God's calling the crowd. So I want you to just ask yourself, like, am I part of the crowd? Am I the 70? Am I the 12? Am I the three? Am I the one? Wherever you find yourself, just come closer. Jesus stood on the mountain and he looked at Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I've wanted to gather you. Like a mother gathers her chicks, but you would have none of it. This has been his heartbeat since Genesis. Thank God we outgrow as teenagers. We start to appreciate our parents and love them again. Praise the Lord, right? But if you're mature in faith, listen, you're a baby believer. You can just save a little bit of time. It's okay. You got time. Don't feel like you have to host a life group right now, right? God wants you to participate. But if you're a mature believer, I need you to ask, am I a contributor or am I a consumer? Do I take more from the kingdom than I give to it? Of course, we can never give more to the kingdom than what we get from it. But it's a lofty ambition to try. My goal is when I see those eyes, because I love my dad, and I can't wait to see my dad when I go to heaven. But you can bank it. When homegirl gets to heaven, I'm not falling. I'm running to Jesus, like running to him. And I'm going to monkey him. Do you not monkey me? You grab like this. I can't wait to see him. And so for me, the more crowns I can give him, 
The more things I can stack up to offer at his feet, the more I can be on his chest and hear his heartbeat, that he cares about the lost and the dying, that all this thing that we're doing on this giant circle that's circulating in the sky and it's spinning in the universe, what are we doing here? Why on earth are we here on earth? He's got a purpose for it. Let us not be distracted with things that will fade. I want to participate in his heart and care about what he cares about. So ask, am I a consumer or a contributor? Am I observing or am I participating? Am I following him or am I asking Jesus to follow me? One of the beautiful things that I loved about doing Seder last night, Tracy, is because the danger of success and doing things well, got a new house, love my house, I'm decorating. It's real easy to get distracted by all these earthly things, though. And in my DIY projects, I start to realize that we're prepping as a church, but man, I'm not as burdened about Easter coming up as I should be. I'm not praying for the losses and opportunity. I don't want to be like the disciples who are so disconnected from what God's heart was in that moment at the cross. Have we been burdened? Have we shared in his burden? And I love that last night just reorients your heart. And there's danger in success. Listen to me. There's danger in blessing because it means we have more to lay down. But we have to commit that we love nothing more than we love him. And that we will leave anything he asks us for to follow him because that's what it means to be a disciple. Amen. I want you to bow your head. Father, I just thank you for your word. And God, I ask you, as you beckon us, as you beckon us closer, I pray for courage and faith, courage to let go of what will fade anyway, and faith to see what is yet to come. That we would be willing to weep with you and sweat blood in the garden so that we can share the cup with you. That we would be willing to not just clean everything in our lives and strip every branch, eating it for ourselves and our own families. But God, we would take a step back and look at what we have, even if it's small, and those around us who need it. That God, we would be more than the crowd, Father. That we would be disciples. We would be more than fans. We would be players, that we would be involved, that we would be serious about kingdom work, that you'd break our heart for what breaks yours. God, we recommit, God, to giving you everything because you're worthy of it all. Not some of it, God, you're worthy of it all. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, be sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past messages. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and share. For more content, to connect with us, or if you'd like to support this ministry by giving, visit our website, iheartchurch.online. We love you and have a great day.